Accelerating to a better future, an insight into innovation at Imperial. Hello and welcome to another edition of Accelerating to a Better Future, where we explore and celebrate some of the successful businesses who've been through the Imperial College Clean Tech Accelerator Programme. I'm Amanda Carpenter, and I'm joined in our virtual studio by Professor Richard Templer, Director of Climate Kick, and the driving force behind the Accelerator Programme. Hello again, Richard. How have you been? Um, I'm I'm doing well. I think un, un, under the under the circumstances of lockdown, I'm still vaguely sane, or as sane as I've ever been. <laughs> still stuck at home, but doing your teaching remotely. Uh, yeah, the students have just arrived, as one of our guests and I are experiencing at this very moment. Yeah, it's good to have them back, I guess. Um, we've had some really good chats so far in this series, haven't we? We've been talking to some really interesting businesses and we've covered clean air, food production, storage and packaging, climate friendly buildings. Um, and I have to say that what I really like about the conversations we've had so far is that all of the founders and CEOs have got this incredible vision of what they think the future could look like. I mean, a cleaner, greener future, but they're so practical. They, you know, they're focusing on real life practical solutions. And as I'm a non-scientist, I'm just blown away by this. I just think the application of science to solving problems and that coupled with that entrepreneurial vision is just extraordinary. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, to be honest, that's what got me going over a decade ago in this whole area, really sort of put my, 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 my traditional academic career to one side in order to, um, to help those of my inventive colleagues and people outside of, of the university sector to take ideas and, and make them real. It's the only way we're going to solve um, the problems of climate change is to have, to have the devices and, and, and the services to hand that are going to help us to change the way that we behave and, uh, and, and do our work and live our lives so that we can actually, I don't know, st stop polluting the planet, <laughs> stop heating it up by our actions and all, all the other things which, you know, are causing us so many problems at the moment. Yeah, and Imperial is just a hotbed of innovation, if I can use that expression. I mean, it seems to be extraordinary that, you know, the, the amount of new thinking and dynamic um, new businesses and ideas that are coming out of the university is just incredible. And today we've got two more of the graduates of your programme um, who've who've taken, you know, the support that the kit gave them to, to start building their businesses. Um, and we're focusing on, well, we're focusing generally on transport and zero emissions around transport, mm. but it's a much bigger conversation, isn't it? So I guess we should should introduce our guests. Yes, let's do that. <laughs> so I'm delighted we're joined by Ian Campbell, who's the founder of Breathe Battery Technologies. Ian, hello, welcome. Hi, Amanda. Thanks so much for having me. And by Jason Hallett, who's the director and co-founder of Lixia, but also um, uh, actually works at the university, so um, an academic at Imperial. So, Jason, hi, welcome. Hi, yes, thank you for having me. Well, maybe we should start with you, Jason, because although we we are talking about, you know, zero emissions transport, your your business does does more than that. But it really focuses on the whole issue of, of fuel and the, the impact of the petrochemical industry and how we can find an alternative for that. So so give us a bit of an introduction to, to, to what you do and how you do it. Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you. So, so what we're looking at is what's called biorefining. Um, so, when we think about the context of a bioeconomy, um, and the UK, for instance, has a very robust bioeconomy. Um, it's valued at the moment at about two hundred and twenty billion pounds a year, and that's 
anticipated to double in the next 10 years. But all of that is driven by having alternative inputs into manufacturing other than petrochemical products. Um, historically, we have run all of our fuels and materials from the same source. And by historically, I mean back to the beginnings of human civilization. So first we built things out of wood and burned wood for heat. And then we built things out of plastic and burned gas and oil in order to make heat and create electricity and drive our, our vehicles around. And looking into the future, what we're trying to do is make that a much softer landing. So decarbonizing electricity is not a problem that, that I am attempting to solve. We're looking at the other half of the equation or the other two thirds of the equation. So how do we deal with um, the intermediate problems of transport and materials? So what we do is we take waste, um, so generally things like waste wood that we divert from landfill and the UK I'm sorry to say, um, landfills an incredible amount of resource every year, including about four and a half um, million tons of wood. And we convert that into the starting materials for the bioeconomy. And so that could be biofuels, it could be bioplastics, um, it could be pharmaceuticals, it could be anything. So wh where is the waste wood coming from? I mean, I was shocked by, your, you, by that statement yeah. about, about landfill, because I thought we'd crack the landfill problem, but obviously we haven't at all. Um, well, yes and no. Um, actually, we have cracked that particular landfill problem. We only landfill about 17% of the waste in the UK. Um, waste wood, um, as I said, is one of the few things that, that we have left um, that goes a lot to landfill. A lot of it also gets exported um, to the mainland of Europe. Britain's yeah. generation, but... Um, most of it comes from construction and demolition waste. Um, construction waste is the bits of a building that we don't use when we put the building up. Demolition waste, of course, is what's left over when you tear a building down. And one of the big problems with waste wood is that it's preserved, right? So you don't want the wood, you don't want a building to rot um, when, you, when, when, you're, when you're walking around inside of it. Um, and so the wood is preserved. And historically, we preserved wood with quite toxic chemicals, um, most notably copper, chromium, and arsenic. And so if you see a piece of green wood, um, it's green um, because it has about a half a percent heavy metals in it. If it's a piece of old green wood, then it's green because it has about a half a percent of arsenic in it. Um, and uh, so, of course, it's, it's very dangerous to incinerate, for example. Um, in fact, it's illegal, but it's also very dangerous. Um, and so since we still build and tear down buildings at quite an impressive rate, um, all of that waste ends up getting shipped off to landfill so that uh, it doesn't poison anyone. So, so what do you do with it? How, how, do you, how, how is it useful to you if it's so, if it's so toxic? Yeah, so, so wood, is, uh, as many people are not aware, wood is between 70 and 80% sugar. You know, it doesn't taste very good, but it is, you have to trust me on this, it is between 70 and 80% sugar. Um, so what we do is we have a, a process that uses salt as a solvent in order to strip away everything that isn't the sugar. And the reason it's important that we use a salt is because salts are very good at pulling metals out of things. So one of the advantages that we have, it's a huge advantage that we have over any competitors, is that um, we can process things that are quite dangerous, such as wood that contains heavy metals, um, and what comes out the other end is clean sugar. So you've got sugar, what's happening to the, and, um, and when you've done that processing, are there any kind of waste products from the process you've got? Is there any, I mean, how do you manage that you, cause you must be generating waste as well. So there's, so I suppose there's an issue there about your waste, but one, then I guess we need to ask you what you do with the sugar, but, but what about the, the, the waste itself? How are you preventing damaging stuff getting out into the environment from your processes? 
I mean, yes and no. Um, so the, the process is designed as, as a, well, in some respects, it's a zero emission process. And the reason I say in some respects is it really does depend on what we take in. So if we took in clean wood as a feedstock, then we wouldn't have any waste. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> when we take in the contaminated wood, we have to have a way of dispensing the toxic metals. And so what we end up doing is, I guess you could say purifying the um, toxic components of it. Um, so it reduces the amount of waste going to landfill by a factor of about 2000. So it's, um, it's still, there's still a little bit of stuff that has to come out the other end. Um, some of it like the copper and the chromium that I mentioned a moment ago, of course, have some value. Um, it's not a lot of economic value, but it, it is nice for recycling purposes. So since we have to purify it anyway, um, you can send that back into the metals economy. I don't really know what you would do with arsenic unless you were Agatha Christie fan and wanted to poison somebody. Um, so uh, that that I think we will probably dispose of. Um, arsenic's been banned as a as a preservative for uh, almost twenty years now. Yeah, I had no idea there was still arsenic in wood. So well, you've got some some fabulous sugars, and then what do we do with sugars? Because we can't turn can we turn sugar into fuel? Yes, of course. So the the most prominent, or I guess the the biggest scale application um, of sugars, and these are what we call second generation sugars. So um, sugars that don't come from food crops. The biggest use for that is to make uh, ethanol or bioethanol in order to use as a biofuel. Um, there are other biofuels you can make, but bioethanol is by far the, the dominant one on the market. Um, it's over 10%, it's almost 12% now of the United States um, uh, fuel mixture and other countries such as most prominently again, China um, are increasing their bioethanol components um, on, a, on a yearly basis. So trying to, to make those sorts of fuels in order to displace a portion of the petrol is certainly the, the short-term goal um, of, of most biorefinery applications. I think I'd like to insert a comment here. Essentially what you're doing is making rum. Okay. <laughs> this is, there's, there's nothing fancy about this in the old days, right? You had sugar cane, you got the sugars out, and then you fermented them and you had rum. Hurrah! So basically, well, you're running you're running your vehicle on rum. Well, Richard, I'd like to think it's vodka Why not? Rather, than, rather than rum. Uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the, the reason is, in, in rum, you know what went in, and in vodka, you really don't know what went in. It's probably a slightly better analogy for us. Okay, yeah. I just want to say that the, 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 the technology for turning sugars into alcohol has been around for, for a good long while. I think it's about... When is the first evidence of, 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 of fermenting stuff? It was a long time ago in Egypt. 10,000 years. The Sumerians. Actually, every time we discover a new oldest human civilization, um, we find out that they had the capacity to make beer. Yeah. So there's a very widespread anthropological theory that the reason human beings stopped moving about hunting and gathering and started settling down and growing crops was literally so we could make beer. We're basically too drunk <laughs> to get up in the morning, right? <laughs> <laughs> so presumably, it's not rum you're putting in the vehicles. This is—I mean, you're using the you're using this biofuel as a, as as a to power vehicles or to do other things. I mean, I mean, I mean there's a, there's a lot of different things that you can do. So the the biggest application, as I said, is to power vehicles. Yes, and there's a there has been a long term goal to in the EU to replace. 20% of uh, transport fuels with biofuels. I say long-term because the first time I was aware of it, 2020 was the target year. Um, then it became 2030 and then it became 2040, et cetera, because it's a very difficult nut to crack. Um, there are a lot of other things that you can do, however, either with second generation sugars 
or with the components of wood in general. So we look uh, also at other applications of um, bio-based sugars, so other aspects of the bioeconomy. Bioplastics is a good example of that. So how do we make, uh, again, plastics without using petrol? Um, I mentioned pharmaceuticals. So most pharmaceuticals, um, at least biopharmaceuticals, are fermented. Um, but there are, there are applications even for things like cellulose and lignin. So the, uh, the polymer components of wood, um, cellulose um, is, of course, what we make paper out of, um, and also napkins and towels, and, no, sorry, paper towels, um, uh, and other things. Um, so there's a lot of different material applications beyond just biofuels. And I think that's very important because one of the reasons, maybe the only reason, that we don't have widespread um, bioethanol or cellulosic ethanol today is because of the economics. And I think, and I'm not alone on this, um, that, that was because the business model that was set out for cellulosic ethanol was very short-sighted. Um, attempting to make one thing um, is, is a very difficult engineering feat. Yeah, I mean, economics is is one of the driving factors, isn't it, in all of these you know, alternative uh, solutions to climate change pollutants, I mean, into the clean tech industry, because that's something that plays particularly into the electric vehicle market, doesn't it, Ian? I mean, the problem is a lot of us would really love to own an electric vehicle, but for many people, they're prohibitively expensive. Um, and I guess a lot of that expense comes from from the cost of, of, of the engineering, particularly around the batteries, because that's where you come in, isn't it? That's what, what Breathe are doing. You're looking at a better a better way of approaching battery technology. Is that right? That's it. Yeah. So today, the, the battery is still one of the uh, the highest traction uh, cost of, of the vehicles, and it's 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 the reason why they're not yet or are still struggling to be cost competitive with internal combustion engine vehicles. And that is one of the benefits that we are trying to achieve with the softwares that we're developing at Breathe. So what what we do is we develop battery management software to help enhance the safety of batteries in vehicles to help extract more performance out of a given battery, so a given set of materials, a given battery chemistry, and also to try and help um, reduce the, the cost of developing that battery pack and reduce the time to market. And in, in all of these ways, overall, um, have a positive effect on electrification of transport and, and try and catalyze that, that process. And, uh, I think it's, it's, it's nice to think about how it fits in with the work that Jason and his team are doing at Lixia as well. I, I think Jason's perfectly correct that the, the current stock of, of um, road road cars, you know, is going to take some, some decades to actually replace on the roads. But it, it does look likely that, that we will make a transition from ICEs um, to to fully electric vehicles. Almost almost skipping skipping a lot of hybridization in that sector. But there are other uh, transport sectors where that is uh, absolutely not going to happen. And, and aerospace and, and flight is, is one of them where. I think from, from, the, from the engineering perspective with batteries um, today, we, we still struggle um, as an industry very much with achieving uh, good gravimetric energy density. So it's a good levels of, of energy per, per unit mass. And uh, that, that's an area where I think uh, biofuels will, will, I think, probably end up playing uh, a longer term role in over the next decades in helping to decarbonize flight. So how did you, I mean, what, what support did the accelerator give to you? I mean, when you when you joined the program, were you at the stage of having a, a fairly fully formed idea as to what you wanted to do? Because you're coming at it from a software perspective, aren't you, rather than a hard sort of, you know, um, production element. So, so were you already there or was the accelerator instrumental in taking you from this kind of nascent idea to something that's actually going to be ready for the market quite soon? Yeah, it, it was instrumental. We, we actually didn't, it, it wasn't our first experience with Climate Kick with the Accelerator program. We actually went through the Greenhouse program initially. And that was that was the very first activity that we undertook as a company. 
was going through Greenhouse and developing the business plan for the first time, uh, doing doing the, the, the market analysis, um, the business model canvas, understanding you know what what where we would fit into the supply chain and, and, and what the customer um, would look like. And it was it was when we had that sort of basic business plan in place that we met Richard, and Richard took us on to the, the accelerator program. And I think it's uh, it's meant that we could go from having a theoretical business plan uh, on paper um, and having this idea for technology at the time that, that we wanted to develop. Um, we, we into into having uh, today quite quite a bit of traction in a couple of different sectors, um, primarily automotive and also the grid storage sector, where we're working on, on solutions for for um, large batteries connected to the grid. And I think you know converting our theories and what we what we thought was correct initially at the business plan into learnings and also the traction has been what the accelerator delivered. And the the other thing I think for us and is is, is not possible. I don't think to have this conversation that I mentioned is. is Climate Kicks funding support uh, also is, is, is hugely important at, at that stage because the, the, the companies are so in a sense, you know, so, so early stage that we don't have a lot of valuation. We don't have a lot of traction on which to, to have a valuation uh, and getting the funding to be able to go full time on it. When we graduated from our PhD programs at Imperial, for example, was was really important and not suffer so much dilution at that stage with any kind of equity fundraising. So it, yeah, I would say it, it actually enabled it for, for one thing, which is fundamentally the core thing. Um, the second thing was it really accelerated it with the, the learnings. Because you're now, you, you know, you're, you're, you're one of our more recent, well, actually you're, 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 you're one of the very last Climate Kick funded um, startups. Whereas Jason, I think was maybe generation or something like that. So we've got early, uh, the, some of the earliest ones and some of the later ones. So you're still quite sort of fresh from all of the experience of telling people what it is you're doing. So I want you to, I'm going to be really cruel and ask you if, 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 you're, if, if you had to say what it is that your business does yeah. in one or at most two sentences, um, and that really gets people's attention. What would you say to them? What would the two sentences be? Yeah, we, we can uh, very substantially extend the lifetime of batteries today using software that we can flash onto existing hardware and with existing commercially available batteries. So we're not reliant on any material breakthroughs or chemistry breakthroughs, but can substantially enhance the performance of, of, of the, the products I, I, out there today. I, I, I can tell you when you when you came to the interview and you, I, 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 I'm going to get the figures wrong. So you but you better just fill in the figures after I finish. But I remember you saying quite blithely it was so funny, you know, you go, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. So so the software can help to extend the range of an electric vehicle by five percent. And you were saying it like it meant nothing. And I was going, oh, my God, really? Seriously? Nothing? <laughs> you do that? People are going to fall over themselves to have this stuff. Is it 5%? Have I got that right? It, it varies by application, for sure. I think, you know, in motorsport That'd situations. That's a Come on, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, have, we have shown 5% better, better capacity retention of batteries. So we have commercially available batteries today. So yeah. a, I, I'll make a brief comment on it and say what, what we do is we manage degradation as a company. So it's so all batteries. Um, you know they're perfect. They're they're good when when you buy them brand new, but um, you know they're rechargeable. Uh, they degrade over the years of usage. You, you all experience that, and we all do with our smartphones, for example. It's the same thing with you know the ten thousand pound battery pack in an electric car. It's the same thing with an, with a ten million pound battery pack connected to the grid. Um, but if you have some intelligent control software that can help to to estimate what degradation will happen to the battery, and then make decisions uh, smartly yeah, about how to control it and prevent that happening. 
you can retain the, the health of the battery and the performance much closer to the as new level for much longer. And that means that you, you on average then have a much better experience as a user with that battery and you reduce the cost per use as well because you have a longer lifetime. And that reduction in cost per use is super important for the grid where everything is, is, is financial. It's super important for, for e-mobility, um, for, for scooters, because uh, scooters for, for bikes, these kind of things, because everything is based upon cost per journey. And it's super important for electric cars because uh, what, what uh, the engineering industry does is they, they design in a lot of overhead and ex excess capacity into battery packs to deal with degradation today. And that adds cost up front. Uh, and if the battery degrades less, you don't need to do that. Uh, and then, then the cost comes down and the whole industry is catalyzed and, and the electrification can happen quicker. So, well, so we, we try to do all of this with, with software. I think, Amanda, there's something very sort of deep and cultural about what um, both Ian and, and Jason are, are doing. And it sort of harks back to my grandparents' era where, you know, your, your grandparents would tell you to be careful with things, to not waste things. And probably since... You know, after the Second World War and the hegemony of free markets and great technological strides and advances, we've become very wasteful. And the kind of the overheads that Ian is talking about, the the kind of the, paying no attention to what looks like waste at the moment. You know, well, in, in Jason's case, you know, the, the wood that just gets tossed aside is... It is part of the cultural reason why we are where we are. So what I really loved actually about both of these companies and many of the other ones was that it was saying we can be clever, we can pay attention to our resources and use them more carefully. And I think that's, I don't know whether, whether Jason and Ian agree, but I kind of feel that's thematically going to be something at the core of most of the innovations that we will see this century is just greater care about how we use natural resources. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's sad that we've had to come to this point, isn't it? Because if we'd been careful before, if we'd harboured our resources and been less wasteful as consumers and as societies, we wouldn't perhaps be in this mess, particularly, you know, if we look at things like plastics that you mentioned, Jason. But the idea that you might actually extend the life of products and then create new products from waste is, is at the core of, of, of sustainability and having a more balanced environmental approach. Ian, I'm fascinated by the idea that you've got a bit of software inside the battery. You know, I did say I was a non-scientist, um, making it last longer because that's going to be of crucial importance because one of the issues with batteries is that they are actually quite difficult to dispose of, aren't they? They're quite toxic. And, you know, I know a lot of environmentalists have a worry about having an electric vehicle because actually the battery itself is relatively short lived in terms of its lifespan. And then you've got a disposal problem. So it's wonderful to think that we might actually be, you know, not just making the battery more efficient, but also getting around that, that waste issue. Yeah, it's, it's something that I think is solvable to, to an extent with a couple of different approaches that are being pursued today. So, so companies like, like us at Breathe, you know, we're doing everything we can to make the first life of the battery longer so that you get more uses out of it. So that, that extend that. There are, um, there are a lot of companies focusing now on, on what are called second life applications. So, so harvesting batteries from first life, um, you know, ideally in cases where, where products have been designed for disassembly, so it's easy to get those batteries out, you know, typically less glue, this, this kind of stuff. And, um, and using those, those batteries for second life, and that means that, that, yeah, it doesn't go to landfill. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be recycled at that stage yet either. 
Um, and then there are companies like an, like another uh, of the companies that was that was on um, Richard's Climate Kick program here in the Accelerator in Imperial that are focused on uh, recycling of batteries. Uh, and a lot of the work that the Faraday Battery Challenge and the Faraday Institution do in the UK is is also they they have a, they have a, a track, folk, uh, a thematic track focused on uh, enhancing the recyclability of batteries. Um, to try and again, you know, in, in sort of in line with, with Jason's uh, attitude of actually avoiding this this situation of them going to landfill. So there are a couple of different approaches, and I think together we are as an industry in the in the battery space moving towards um, you know lengthening that period before you end up with with waste. And how far down the line are you in terms of being ready to get to market? Because, you know, we've been having these grand announcements very recently from politicians about 100% wind power by 2030 and offshore wind. And, and we all know that, that that crucial to delivering that energy into the grid is battery storage. So so we need guys like you to, to get on with it, really. So how close are yeah. you to being able to get on with it? <laughs> uh, yeah, closer because of the accelerator, I'd say, for sure. Uh, so we, where we are today is we have uh, we have trials and collaborations um, with some large OEMs, some large companies that are using batteries in their products. Um, one in particular is a smartphone uh, company that we're working with to, to demonstrate how we can enhance the, the longevity of their batteries. And uh, another is, is a, a heavy duty powertrain OEM um, that we're working with to, to uh, install our software and their hardware and, and help showcase how we can enhance the cycle life of their batteries. And, and the, the, the consumer electronics aspect fits fits into our business in a, in a, in a way that I think makes makes a lot of commercial sense when when we think back about Jason's comment about the, this sort of multi-decade uh, turnover time for, for the vehicle stock right it's it's a long time to market for for companies that today you know in the in the near term need to survive and need to grow and need to, to become profitable uh, consumer electronics is a, is a faster turnover market for us and allows us to showcase a volume you know what we can do technically um, with, with the software. Uh, and be in a much better position then to approach um, the, the vehicle OEMs uh, and the, the, the transport markets and say, hey, you know, this, this works very well. We've proven it and, uh, uh, and, and it will help. Jason, I wanted to ask you about the wider bit of your business, because although it's really um, important that we look at replacing uh, fossil fuels to power vehicles, actually, there's a kind of offshoot to petrochemical um, processing, isn't there? I mean, there's lots of products that actually come out of the petrochemicals industry that are not that are not just fuel for cars. So, so how how does your business link into some of some of those issues? Yeah, it's a good point. And uh, actually, not only are there are lots of products come in the petrochemical industry, it's practically everything, um, including cars. Incidentally, it's, cars are increasingly made out of uh, carbon fiber reinforced composites and those sorts of things, which are which are um, petrochemicals. So. Um, yes, so what we're aiming to do, I, I guess, as a shorter term application is supplement um, the natural product um, market, so the supply chain. One of the biggest problems that we face at the moment in terms of things like cellulose markets um, is the, the, the twin problems of very high cost of production um, coupled with very high environmental emissions. Um, I can never remember if it's third or fourth, but the paper industry is either the third or the fourth. Um, biggest polluter in the planet in terms of, of industry. Um, it's an absolute immense burden that's being put out there. And so offering a solution that on the one hand um, has an application in biofuels, but on the other hand um, has an application in terms of giving us a more sustainable alternative to petrochemical products is quite important. Uh, at the moment, we sort of have that old debate, paper or plastic. And when I was a, a child, everybody thought plastic was better. And then all of a sudden, everybody thinks paper is better. And I, I look at that and I say, actually, I'm not sure that's true, to be honest. Um, the, the paper industry has got a, a lot of uh, problems in terms of how they make things. Um, they produce an enormous amount of pollution. And 
CO2 emissions are part of that, but also uh, very traditional air and water pollution that uh, can cause quite a bit of problems also. And so trying to make one of these products sustainable, I think was quite a big goal. And I, I almost felt like, okay, we'll, we'll hedge our bets. We'll try and figure out ways to make bioplastics in case people want to keep using plastics. We'll try and figure out ways of making more sustainable cellulose in case people want to keep trying to make things out of, out of paper. And that way, I guess we can, we can win on either side. Yeah. And also you were saying before we started recording, we were chatting about the, the impact of no having no petrochemicals industry. And and you mentioned the, the lovely word tarmac. I mean, there is a, there's a lot of byproducts that come out of out of the petrochemical business, aren't there? That if we didn't if we didn't do that, we would lose those. So are we looking to find replace all of those as well by trying to stop our reliance on on petrochemical refineries and engineering? Yeah, yeah, Richard mentioned that. And I think it's something Lixia thinks about a lot. Um, as a company, we have, to, we have to think quite a bit, as I said, trying to be zero waste. Um, one of the things that that means is figuring out that same approach. Tarmac's a great example because the petrochemical industry is too big to actually have any waste. So they have to either find an application for any piece of material that they produce or they have to burn it. Um, and it's a simple matter of volume. They are processing so much material that there is no place on earth that they could bury their waste. Um, and tarmac is a wonderful example. All the world's roads are built from a very low value um, byproduct of petroleum refinery. It's the, the, the stuff that was too heavy for us to do anything else with. And um, trying to think of the same analogies in wood, I think is also quite a big challenge because what we don't want to do is get into a situation where we produce waste in our process. And then we say, okay, we're going to operate at petrochemical scales. And then we've we've got to be sort of that same zero waste approach. Um, and, you know, I, I think a big part of sustainability is trying to accelerate um, a process that took centuries in the case of the petrochemical industry to optimize. And we are at least in, in, in the, in this field of research and also in this sector of the, of the industry, we're very, very familiar with how good they are at engineering um, after 150 years of everybody attempting to optimize every single bit that they could in, in the processing. Um, they've got a very, very energy optimal process in refining. So trying to apply both that sort of optimized engineering approach, but also the, the thinking about your side streams and your byproducts, um, I think is very, very important because in, in the end, if you decide that you're just going to make bioethanol from wood and burn absolutely everything else, it's a viable option. Um, you can even produce a bit of electricity on the side to, to help power the battery-powered cars. Um, but I don't think in the long term it's the most sensible way of doing things. We've got to have a circular approach to this, haven't we? We've got to have, I mean, your, your idea of the bioeconomy, it's more like a circular economy as well, isn't it? We cannot, we cannot build processes for the future that build waste that have a waste element to them or a, or, or a significant waste element, can we? I mean, Richard, we've got to have a, a closed loop here, surely, otherwise we're not going to achieve the clean tech ambitions. I, I, I was just rem reminding myself that Jason and I have, have actually known each other for a really long time. I, I actually can't, can't quite remember the date of the publication, but there was a project that I had some got some money for to work with um, uh, Georgia Tech, um and uh imperial georgia tech and who were the others um uh it was ornl so the oak ridge national Labs. Oh, that's right, oak ridge national labs 
and we were doing we it was it was, was two thousand and six or seven or something. Yeah, two thousand six. Yeah. Yeah, and Jason, you were you were doing your PhD? Or yeah, your... so I was I was the token PhD student on the project. So <laughs> the dog's body who does all the work. Right? Anyway, we 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 were doing stuff on renewables on renewable energy. We did a whole load of stuff, and the one of the best things that came out of it was a a thought piece actually, which Jason and I are on, which was which was addressing the the question you've just asked, and it was sort of. You know, both these startups and many of the others are playing with, which is um, we've had a very linearized economy, dig it up, make it, throw it away, and and optimize systems for doing that as fast as you can. So that leads to greater, you know, uh, what is it called? It, you, you know, you get to peak stuff very quickly. People want stuff. We make stuff and then the stuff is useless. So they have it for a bit, they throw it away so they can get a new piece of stuff, which is better than the previous piece of stuff. And, you know, this clearly, um, it's just untenable. You can't keep on doing that forever. And then you start thinking, okay, so I need to be more careful. And that means I will have to try and reuse and recirculate. But there are laws, there are laws of, of, of physics which tell you you can't do that perfectly. The laws of thermodynamics tell you that every time you go and make something, you, 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 you basically create disorder. You create, you know, pollution, of, of, if you like, of one sort or another. And what you've got to try and do is make that pollution as, with as little harm as possible, and actually, I, I think there's there's a there's a real question for all of us, including the two companies, which is, do we need as much stuff? Um, is the cost of stuff too cheap? And I think, you know, having done this now for a decade, I think we we will, as a society, have to think about um, the true cost of what we do, which Jason has alluded to, right? true cost of what you do if you were to do to use the true cost of what we do jason's technologies would start to look remarkably cheap and you know petrochemicals would start to look remarkably expensive um similarly for for batteries handled well they'd all of a sudden these things would look much better I, I may be sounding terribly, I don't know what's the word, messianic or something about all of this, but I actually think it's going to come down to very practical things that the cost per mile or per kilometre to travel will start to rise. I think the economics, are, they're almost inevitable. And so people have to make choices. And one of the challenges that companies like Ian's and Jason's have is how do you guide a company through a socioeconomic revolution when you you know you're going to be a contributor but you don't quite know what the end points are maybe i should get them to comment and and, and be quiet because i think it'd be really interesting to hear what you know do you guys worry about that worry about is my plan actually going to match up to the reality that's waiting for me um down the road I think I'll tackle that first because I think Ian actually has a better answer. Uh, he's a he's, he's, in a he's in a much better position in that sense um, because we, we are still still selling things. But I think what Richard's alluding to, which is really important, we there's a cost associated with emitting every single pollutant on the planet, save one, and it's carbon dioxide. And as long as that is true, um, we are 
or we as a society or we as an industry are permitted to emit large scale amounts of a pollutant and not pay for it. And so there is the, often academics refer to it as a hidden subsidy for um, industries like the petrochemical industry. But honestly, in the end, it's just the way that society values different things. We've decided that CO2 emissions don't cost anything, which of course we know is blatantly untrue. I think the biggest problem from a socioeconomic point of view is trying to make sure that you don't end up solving one problem and creating a bunch of others. And um, I, I think to draw on an analogy that's very popular at the moment, um, plastic waste is a great example. Plastics solve a lot of problems um, and the alternatives to plastics are often quite nasty. I, I sometimes get in trouble for talking about this, but glass bottle or a plastic bottle, right? If you use a plastic bottle, um, then you've, you've got an issue, a potential issue with waste. You use a glass bottle, then you've increased the CO2 emissions by 60%. So which would you rather do? And it's it's a trade-off, right? And so there are very few perfect solutions when you're talking about material applications um, because there's there's always, as Richard said, a, a thermodynamic penalty to pay. And uh, the, 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 he avoided using the word entropy, but that, that's what's at the heart of that. Um, use the E word, Jason. The Shame e word, on yeah. you, mate. <laughs> if, you, uh, if, you, uh, if you make something, you cannot close a perfectly circular loop without having an infinite energy input, which is a great, great term to use. But, uh, but basically, um, perpetual motion is impossible. So what we want to do is try and, and hit on the second half of what Richard said, which is try and make sure that whatever waste there is, is a lot less nasty than the alternatives. Yeah. I think it's a very practical point of view. I'm an engineer, so it's a very practical point of view. I can't go into the idealistic, what, what if everything was perfect, because it can't be. Um, there is no zero waste. There's no way of making anything without creating pollution, and that includes electricity. Um, even solar electricity, we still have to make a solar panel. So in the end, we have to make something. And if we're going to make stuff, we need to minimize the impact of making that stuff. Lixia has this great tagline of enabling the circular bioeconomy, which I always love. But what I always say is trying to make stuff from waste or trying to make stuff that isn't as nasty as the stuff we have right now. That's good for the non-scientist. I can understand that. <laughs> I, I, th I think, by, by, the, by the way, Jason says something quite important, um, which is that we have to have uncomfortable conversations which challenge some of our prejudices. Yeah. So, you know, I also got, I mean, I, I think... If one is very precise, single-use plastics are, are not good. They're clearly causing a lot of environmental damage. And But plastic is not bad. Plastic has got lots of benefits. And so, you know, where you have multiple-use plastic, it has huge advantages over many other materials. And we need to have these kind of adult conversations. But, but Rich, Richard, the, the problem is it's not the... It, plastic in itself can't be good or bad because it, it's inert. It doesn't have any, any you know, and there's no moral code to a piece of plastic. Yeah. It's our attitude as people as to what we do with the plastic and how we dispose of the plastic yeah. and how we manage the problem. And in some places, you'd really want single-use plastic. If you were in a hospital, the thing you'd really want would be single-use yeah. plastic, wrapping up the syringes, wrapping up the drips. So, yeah. so as you say, there's, it's, it's, a moral, it's a moral question, but it comes down to people and behaviours at the end of the day, it doesn't does. it, really? It does. You're right. Ian, in the ocean. No, and don't put it in the ocean. Yeah, and how we dispose of the waste and what we do with it. And, and you know, I loved your stat there, Jason, that, you know, a glass bottle has 60% more CO2, presumably in its manufacturing but process. But I guess you'd reuse it and reuse it and reuse it because you could 
because it's durable and because you can clean it. And, you know, so there's, there's this element of how we, the relationship we have with, with the, with the item in question as much as the item itself. Ian, we've given you lots of thinking time, but you, you're not let off the hook. So. (laughs) (laughs) I, I have been thinking, yes, while you've been speaking, it's very interesting. I I think the cost is the, the cost of all of this is probably the most important, one of the most important elements because it, it can act as such a strong incentive for, for reuse and for extending life or for having a second life in these ways. I think, you know, having, having this approach from the accelerator where you have companies that are, that are for profit entities and trying to tackle it in a way that is profitable is fundamentally a good, a good strategy because in, in making it profitable, I think it makes it possible that there is real change and there is real uptake of these technologies on a, on a widespread basis. Now, I think, it's always nice to read um, to read about theories about solutions in, in various different ways, and in, in, in so many in technology and politics and in eco- in economics in economics in many different ways. But unless they're, they're profitable, I, th- I think it's very difficult to, to make them um, yeah effective. And, uh, and that is, of course, what we're trying to do at Breathe is, is, is um, do this in a way that it creates overall value in, in the battery industry and the transport industry. And and sounds very much um, similar approach at Alexio as well with Jason and his team. If the the ionic liquid approach is, 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 and I'd love to hear Jason's comments on this because it's an area that I'm not familiar with at all, the cost of of the the second life um, for, for these woods and these materials. Yeah, I mean, actually it was our our key breakthrough actually was was always economic and I, I, you know, it hurts. Uh, The scientist in me always feels very pained. The engineer is very smug. Um, (laughs) It's always quite painful because actually the innovation that that we discovered was figuring out, first of all, how to make ionic liquids, the the organic salts that that we use, how to make them very cheap. That was really, that was huge. And the other thing was discovering um, that the, the cost associated with different sources of input material was really important. And so moving from cutting down trees um, to using waste materials, um, such as agricultural residues, to moving all the way into things like wastewood um, made a huge difference, both in terms of our potential environmental impact being, being much more sustainable, but also it turned the economics on its head. And so all of a sudden, um, you know, you can sort of, you can almost make money as a waste disposal company. Um, and so the, it's, it's just a matter of figuring out which application is most beneficial to the environment. That was, that was a fun, fun bit, but it took us a long time to get there. <laughs> the economics are really important because what we're ultimately talking about here is generating a new breed of sustainable businesses. And in order to be too sustainable, you need to make a profit so you can employ people and you can have, you know, go on employing people and you can put money back into the business. And, you know, that's what we need. So we need these 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 sustainable ideas to be economically sustainable as well. It's absolutely vital. And that again, I guess, comes full circle back to the role of the Climate Kick and, and, and the programme itself and the innovation support and helping businesses f- become fledgling and then fly and be successful. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to both of you. Thank you so much for, for joining this, this episode. There's so much more we could talk about, um, but we really should draw it to a close. So, um, so Richard, I think we should thank our guests, Jason and Ian. Yes, thank you both very much for taking the time out um, from your busy days and having a chat about transport without all the nasties. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for having us. Thank you indeed. Yeah, it's great. Great to see you. 
Um, thanks, Richard. Um, and thank you to our listeners uh, for joining us for um, another episode of Accelerating to a Better Future. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to catch future episodes um, and bonus material, either on your favourite podcast app or via the Grantham Institute website. And um, just remains for me to say thank you for listening and goodbye. Accelerating to a Better Future is a Planet Pod production, co-hosted by Amanda Carpenter and Richard Templer. Our thanks to our producer, Jim Hayward, and the team at Imperial College London.